This talk is given by Vanessa Zvise Goddard, a writer and lay Zen teacher based in New York City. This talk, like all of Zvise's talks, is offered freely. If you'd like to make a donation, find out more about Zvise's teachings, or sign up for her newsletter, please visit her website at vanessasvisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. May the merits of these teachings benefit all beings. May these words help and not harm. May they clarify and not confuse. May they self-liberate, leaving no trace behind. All right, good evening, everyone, welcome. We are at the halfway point of these eight realizations of great beings. And the fourth realization is the awareness that indolence is an obstacle to practice. And the commentary says, you must practice diligently to transform unwholesome mental states that bind you. And you must conquer the four kinds of Mara in order to free yourself from the prisons of the five aggregates and the three worlds. And I am calling this realization, find your enthusiasm. Because, you know, I think we all know that practice takes work, that it takes effort, that any kind of real transformation takes effort. And I, just before I was reading this article in the New York Times, I found this article that a man by the name of Larry Sheinberg wrote in 1976 when Daibosatsu Monastery had just been built. And he was a, a student of Eido Roshi for many years. And he afterwards um, sat with us at the monastery, so I know him. And he was saying that one out of 25 people who go to a Zen monastery, a Zen center, one out of 25 will actually stick with it and perhaps become a student. But that if you do it for three years, then you'll do it for the rest of your life. I thought that was interesting. And um, he also said that in his experience, um, Zazen at a certain point had become very organic. He said, like eating. And he says, while this makes life without it rather difficult to imagine, it also makes the practice harder. Like others, I think I used to help myself along by making it heroic. And I thought that was very apropos of this uh, fourth realization. I used to help myself along by making it heroic. I have definitely done that myself. And so what does it mean to let it be organic? Let it be completely ordinary. And at the same time, be filled with our enthusiasm, with our zeal, with our aspiration for practice. And the four kinds of Mara, four kinds of demons, four kinds of obstacles, are uh, unwholesome thoughts, the five skandhas, I mean, essentially the self, death, and distractions. So 
you know, very simply, this realization is, is saying to free yourself of the self takes hard work, right? Doing it half-heartedly won't cut it. Doing it superficially won't really change anything. And so to free yourself of the self, of desire, of death, of the fear of death is no small thing. Knowing this, the real question is, how do we muster up that enthusiasm, especially during those times when we don't feel it? That's the question that I want to work with today. And for the benefit of those of you who are joining us for the first time, today we're doing what I call a threaded talk, which means we are writing the Dharma talk together. And I was thinking about how Daito Roshi would often um, introduce, um, especially he would do this, especially when, when uh, doing Dharma encounter, right? This, this formal, uh, but unscripted one-on-one -on -one meeting between teacher and student that would happen in public. And he would always introduce these by saying, there are five ways that teachers and students interact. And then we, he would go through and he would list them and he would say, there's a Dharma talk and there's question and answers and there's this, there's informal, et cetera. And I was thinking about that as I was, as I was you know, looking at the calendar and kind of planning what to do when and thinking, that that's kind of what I've been doing. What we've been doing together is finding these different ways to interact in a way that feels skillful, that feels engaging, especially in this medium of Zoom. And so this is different from just an informal discussion. And if we do it well, you will feel the difference, right? Because in group discussions, two things can happen. Either the group is cohesive and, and really working together, or it's not. And then each person is kind of in their own world, in their own bubble, uh, talking about their own concerns, It not necessarily taking in, listening to, tying together their reflections to anyone else's. A threaded talk is the first right, when we are working really as one body, where we're very actively practicing, listening, and, and speaking from that place of connection. Picking up the thread of each other's words, and even if we go off in a, in a different direction, that the connection is still there. And so this means that we have to be really present with one another. And that's why the couple of times that we've done this, I have really valued it so much because I think it's such a concrete expression of our interbeing. And not to mention that the practice of deep listening is always, always helpful, right? To listen fully and trust that we don't have to be planning what we're going to say while somebody else is speaking that when we listen deeply, that when we listen into what is being said and into the silence and into ourselves, 
that from that silence and from that openness and that connection, we speak from a place of wisdom. So that's what I'm hoping for today. And so I gave the question, how do we muster up enthusiasm when it's flagging? But, but to start us off, I want to offer another question that one of you included in the blue sky reflections, right? On the, on the format of these Wednesday meetings. And one of you said, my guiding question is, how can I show up to be with a Sangha for two hours each week and not subtly reinforce the speed, production, transactional consumption, collapse cycle of modern life? How can the way that we come together feel supportive and nourishing for all involved? And I think this too is an excellent tie-in to that first question I posed. And so if whoever wrote that on the, the blue sky notes, if you are here and if you are willing to take up your own question and start us off on this threaded talk, that would be wonderful. So the first question, I guess, is, are you here? <laughs> Did one I of am you... here. <laughs> Excellent. All right, so you can take it away, Jess. Oh, great. Um, yeah, I... I think whenever I was thinking about that question, um, the thing that was coming to mind was um, the way that coming to a Dharma thing or producing a talk for a Dharma gathering just becomes this cycle of production, right? It becomes, it can be both a practice or it can also kind of um, be the way that meditation becomes not practice, becomes a way of hiding. Um, and I think I'm curious for the group, how can we hold each other so that it's not that, um, it's not really what I'm interested in. And, and also, how does it not become just a social gathering or just a, you know, nice place? How does rigor continue within that bounds? Um, and I guess my answer for the laziness question maybe comes, might go the opposite direction in that I know that the traditional, you know, antidote to laziness is exertion, right? You try harder, you keep pushing, um, you find some way to like engage. But I was really struggling with my practice um, after my own sangha really fell apart in the last few years. And I was talking to a friend and a mentor and I was just saying like, I don't know why we meditate. Like, what are we doing here? What? No, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm just going to watch Netflix. 
And my, like, that's not any different. How is that different? I'm staring, my gaze is fixed. I'm not doing anything different. And my dear friend was like, okay, well, just like, he had the utter confidence that laziness will burn itself out, right? Laziness consumes laziness. Um, and ultimately it did, I'm here practicing like there's something that's here. So I think to tie those two things together is how, how do we let what's arising in our own feelings, uh, even if they're not positive, how do we let like our practice in the way that we, how do we bring those to this gathering so that it can kind of consume itself or like burn itself into whatever it becomes or transmute itself, so. Hello. Um, so I'll do the best I can to answer Jessica, I think, um, but I might fail. And so I think what you're saying is that uh, there's something, I think you're trying to contradict our notions of productivity and busyness and distraction and how do we get away from that? And I was thinking about failure and I was thinking instead of being very heroic, instead of being um, lazy necessarily, but to embrace the failure of not practicing well. And I think in our society, especially our educational system doesn't really value uh, failure. Um, we always want students to be productive. We want them to get good grades. If you don't get good grades, you get a penalty, you get a bad grade. Um, but actually a lot of um, good, good work and good, um, I don't know, good inspiration actually comes out of failing because you are actually examining yourself. You're being curious about why am I being lazy or why am I not doing this? And maybe you try something new or maybe, maybe you persevere, but at least you're looking at the failure. And I think failure is the place where uh, we're kind of most vulnerable too. And so I think that's the place um, that I have to constantly remind myself of to be in so that I can act, uh, interact with others at the most, um, I don't know, most intimate level. Um, but it takes a lot of courage to do that. So that's my answer. Jess. Yeah, I think I, think I have a similar answer, which um, maybe stated a slightly different way is to make very large the idea of what practice is. Um, I do struggle with how to make it large enough to include everything without making it so large as to be meaningless. Um, you know, making it large enough while allowing space for honesty with myself, like are you practicing? <laughs> you know, like what what counts as as practice, I think is something that I am struggling with. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, it's been very important to me in the last few weeks to be able to, to continue showing up here, even though I 
don't really feel like I have anything to offer and like don't really and feel like my um my practice feels like very like like eking out every little iota of energy um so to be able to be really honest about like what what practice looks like um and and not to have the definition of it be so small that like you're at, you know only if you're doing these things are you practicing and otherwise like maybe don't show up i'd like to just pull out a, a, a thread there and and hold it up because i think it's important and that was your question what counts as practice and i think it's an interesting way to frame it and it's a common way to frame it what counts as practice Marguerite. Well, I am going to respond to Blue. I'm glad she mentioned failure. When she said failure, I thought failure. I don't I don't think I'm failing at anything. But then you went on to say failing at the practice. And I thought I am. And um, and I sit with the Buffalo Zen Dharma community. I'm from Buffalo and I sit with them on Mondays and Tuesdays. So I get a couple hours in each of those nights. And then I'm very, very grateful to be with you folks on Wednesdays. And then I do a Thich Nhat Hanh group on Saturdays. But when I'm with the Zen Dharma community in Buffalo, and I'm with those students that are always going to the continuous thread at the monastery, I feel like a failure because I don't always go. They're always going. I think, Oh my gosh. I, I, and so that really makes me look at myself and feel like I'm a failure because they're so into doing that. And so I think, um, like Jess said, and what else do I do to practice? And I was, I was thinking of my mindfulness and I thought, is mindfulness good enough? Is it good enough just to be aware of everything that's happening, aware of washing the dishes, aware of being aware, and I've worked with Tony Packer and she call, she says, just stop the eye stuff and just say, awaring, I'm awaring the sun, I'm awaring spring. And I thought, well, maybe that could be good enough. I don't, I don't know what's going to be good enough. I, tr I think the mindfulness I can do all as much as possible because it's always happening, obviously. Zazen isn't always happening. So I, I, I really can put more effort into being mindful of every everything that's happening in my life. So that awareness and that mindfulness, I think is, is like a, a bonus. That's where I think I'm, I don't even want to be good or bad or fail or pass either. You know, that sort of gets my ego all tangled up into this. And so I look at my ego. So I think maybe I'm practicing when I recognize my ego is just running rampant and I'm so upset with it and I want to tell it to go away. And so I guess I, as I talk to you all, I think I'm doing practice and I'm doing it in a variety of ways, but I'm not doing the continuous threads all the time. And so I, I don't know. So easy. be my teacher later when we can talk and tell me about this, these students and their intensity. And I'm not a student. So I, I don't know. That, that makes me feel like the failure. And I, oh, gosh, this is enough. Thank you all. Marguerite, it's okay that you don't do the continuous practice uh, retreats all the time. 
It is perfectly fine. Thank you. Jitsuko. Um, yeah, hi. I remember going up um, to the monastery and just meeting people and they're like, I never miss a day of sitting. And this is like back in the day, like, you know, um, I don't remember, but just remember going up there, meeting people like, I don't miss a day. I'm like, what the heck? Like, <laughs> I miss a day. <laughs> I always miss sitting like I don't sit like as and then just like definitely feeling like a failure you know um and I guess like trying to engage the practice in other ways and that was really helpful like especially where I was living I was living out in the middle of a Navajo Indian reservation and it was very very sparse and I was just kind of able to practice all the time whether or not I was sitting or not um and I think that that was useful to to realize that oh I'm actually can always be practicing because like you said like mindfulness is always happening I'm like oh yeah like and like that was kind of my point of sitting in the first place was that like I wanted to kind of like have this impact my life while I'm not on the cushion like that was sort of like I like how I feel when I'm on the cushion but I I want to feel like that all the time you know and then now I'm realizing I think there is something to sitting formally constantly or like on a regular basis it's like a little bit like gas in your fuel tank. And I think I remember like reading about bodhicitta and like that you can overcome Mara if you build up a certain amount of bodhicitta, but you have to build it up. Like you can't, it, like you have to have a full gas tank. And so like I'm starting to kind of connect those two, like maybe if I sit on the cushion, like maybe my life will feel better. Like maybe if I sit on the cushion, maybe I can tell Mara to like, you're not going to bother me today, Mara. You know, like maybe those are connected, maybe. <laughs> but I hate sitting on the cushion and I can't stand those people that are like, I sit every day. <laughs> I mean, good for them. Like, bravo, but I, I have a hard time. It's so hard for me to sit on the cushion. I want it to happen naturally. And I don't want to work for it. <laughs> Something about what you said, Jitsuko, in terms of bodhicitta. Uh, that's exactly right. You know, so there's there's the 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 that arising of bodhicitta and the first, you know, that it can happen naturally. I think for, for um, many of us at some point, if we recognize it, and then you have to maintain it, you have to actually take actions that will nurture it, that will, that will feed it. And zazen is just, is, is just one of those actions, um, but that is very true. There, and, and that is true of zazen too. There is an aspect of it, which is so natural, because remember, we're sitting as the beings that we already are, right? As the Buddhas that we already are, the awakened beings that we already are. But we don't know that most of the time. 
most of the time we forget. Therefore, we put in effort to remember, which is the, the, the meaning and the root of the word mindfulness, to remember. Chris. I, the feeling I got from what Jitsuko was just talking about, she didn't use this word, but I, I really felt it like the sufficiency of ourselves in each moment. And for me, that's, that's what's been running around, circling around in my head for the past uh, few minutes is um, trusting the sufficiency of our experience in each moment and trusting that if we're feeling lazy, that there's something there for me, you know, in the laziness, like it's everything's, uh, you know, everything appears to, to teach us and to help us. And so I can't exclude that, you know, the, the laziness and the times when I've been um, less than fully motivated, I think are um, fruitful. You know, if, if nothing else, they provide some contrast <laughs> and some, uh, um, some space and definition and things to, to practice. Um, and they actually, in some ways, I, I think like, like laziness and then, you know, needing a feeling like I need to overcome it um, in, invites like good questions about, um, you know, how do I motivate? And those questions I often, I can take for granted for a long time. Like when I, when I was in the year of residency at the monastery, I didn't, I don't recall doing, doing any like real inquiry or reflection about what motivates me because the container is so strong that, you know, as long as you show up and some nice person will come get you if you don't show up. So talk about like not needing to generate your own motivation, you know, you can, um, get by uh, without looking at your own motivation very much. And, um, and then the times when I have to generate it myself, you know, I'm in one of those right now, uh, do much, much more of that. It's, it's actually very much a, a blessing, you know, and the, the, the sort of shame story about not being naturally motivated, you might say, um, can hold me back, but it, it's also that like, that's something to look at too. You know, it, it can all become grist for the mill. And uh, I think that's the, the beautiful side of, of um, indolence, I think is the word that you said in, in the beginning, which is such a great word. Um, it just means to uh, be free from suffering actually. Um, but we use it as lazy. And those are two very different things. Like, you know, so that's something that comes up for me, but um, to trust the, the sufficiency of that in this moment is, um, is a great practice by itself. Because if I'm not okay with that, that means I'm, I'm not okay with some significant part of myself. I'm not okay with this moment. Uh, I'll get more agitated if it keeps going forward in time, you know, and, and that's not really uh, advancing my practice or my inquiry, so.
And Liz. Hello. Uh, I like I like uh, what you said, Chris. The container is so strong. Um, I think we all have to sort of make our own container <laughs> wherever we are. But uh, that's something I'm working on. Um, I but I was thinking about uh, also just the sort of mundane nature too of of sitting sometimes and what uh, in contrast with being I don't know if I'm ever heroic, but. Uh, sort of like making your bed, you know, you get up and you make your bed. I've been, I've been doing that pretty consistently, <laughs> which I didn't always, but um, I think I went through a, a life uh, stressor and I just started making my bed and it helped me feel uh, that I had some control, I guess. <laughs> so I guess we could look at our practice a little like that, that uh, yeah, not that that's accurate, but um you know, giving it shape and, and a time um, and a place um, can help us to bring it into our life more easily. So that's what I've been working on a little bit the last couple of days. Um, I had made sort of a list before about just things that, uh, that helped me some uh, I know Buddha I think even said that good friends can help us practice um, and that's true in my life uh, for sure um, uh, reading listening to the Dharma talking to teachers um, just creating conditions so that was my little list but um I also like uh, talking about failure, you know, it is, we all fail on some levels all the time. And those are usually our greatest teaching moments um, and can be the hardest time to sit, but probably, I don't know, probably the most worthwhile somehow, right? That's about it. And if I may, Liz, um, you know, don't don't shortchange yourself when you were speaking about, you know, making the bed and um, that that gives you a sense of control. You know, you went through a huge, huge transition. The death of a parent is a seismic shift. The death of a mother, even mm -hmm. more so. I mean, it, it, it doesn't become more more intimate, more personal than that. I mean, you came out of her body quite beautifully mm -hmm. and now she is gone and so so there is there's that and you seems you know very naturally then turn to a very simple very mundane very ordinary task right of just making your bed i would um encourage you you know that as you as you do that you know you really touch in you know be mindful as people have been saying about how that makes you feel, you know, while you do it and afterwards. Because if you think about it, you're just very naturally doing what um, monastics have been practicing for millennia. You know, the, you could say the ritualization of very ordinary tasks um, for the purpose of in partly 
or or, or, or let's say um, mainly, you know, the the in, at, at least in the case of Buddhism, to waking up within that task. But then there is also the the word that's coming up is relinquishment. There, there's something that happens in, in even in very small instances and for, for short moments of doing something like that, you know, where you're no longer thinking about it. You're just, you're just giving yourself to the task. I really feel that there's something that happens that it just, um, Marguerite was talking about the self, that it just kind of erodes the, the strength of the self. So whether you feel like it or not, we've talked about this before, whether it's time for it or not, whether you think it's going to help or not, you just do it because there's something that happens just in the doing. So I just want to, to, to throw that out there, that I, I think you've turned very naturally towards something actually quite profound. Just don't turn it into a thing. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'll pay attention. Yes. Adam. Gosh, there are, uh, I sort of want to pick up on every thread that has been uh, put, put out. Uh, I, you know, I think about, uh, you know, when I began practice and uh, <clears throat> I began practice at, you know, at that Fire Lotus on 23rd Street and um, uh, I was, I so craved, you know, what Chris was talking about, that container. Um, and because I wanted to practice so badly and, but I, you know, I needed the container because uh, it's just who I am. And, um, and I really went, I, I, the way I found to create the container was I lived nearby. So I quickly became the person who had to open up. I became every single morning. I was the one who had to be there, uh, you know, before seven and then open up and get ready. And that, that was, you know, and then I ended up doing many of the evenings too. And it was not selfless. Uh, it was, it was, I mean, it was helpful, I think, but it was, it was what I needed. I needed that. And, um, you know, for a while when the, when, the, when, when the temple opened up in, in Brooklyn, I still, and, and morning sitting moved to 6.30, I was still sometimes getting up I, for two or three mornings a week and getting on the subway at 5.30. And eventually that, that didn't, that couldn't keep. But um, I guess, you know, I, I'm also thinking about what, about, failure there came you know there came a point where there was an upheaval uh you know at the monastery and within the sangha and i felt i felt that i had been failed but i also and then i and then i turned from practice and i felt that i had failed that i didn't know how to meet what was going on and um i've had a you know i had many years of in and out of practice uh Sometimes working with Miyotai Sensei when she's been in New York and available, other times just sort of on my own, and times where I just felt really failing. Just I'm not, I'm not doing this, and uh, feeling that my practice sometimes, you know, I would sit, but it would, it felt very stale, and I just, 
and it, you know, I would say a little bit before the uh, pandemic, I started going and sitting with the village Zen notice because I needed, I wasn't, I wanted to sit again. I wanted to, and to, you know, and I needed, I needed some container <laughs> and, uh, and the pandemic happened and I really, really, really needed to, I needed it. I needed it really badly. And in a way that, you know, that felt as, as necessary and vital as when I'd first started practice. And, um, and I, you know, I, to pick up on the idea of what, you know, what is practice, what counts as practice, did all, was all of that time wasted or was there a practice going on? And uh, because the, you know, the question, the whatever, the urge that brought me to practice in the first place was still there. It was still alive. I was, you know, sometimes I gave attention to it, but it was, so I don't know, was that practice? Um, and, you know, what what revitalized my practice for me was, was let it for a while, letting go of what, what my current practice is. And I just went back to counting every inhalation and every exhalation and just saying, I'm starting at the beginning. And it was the first time I did it. It was like, it was a revelation. I was, it, it all came alive for me again because it was, I had nothing to prove. I had nothing to, it just, you know, I didn't need to get anything. I just wanted to be there. And So I don't know what I don't know exactly where I'm going with this. Other than I think I'm trying now to find to find a way to create my own container and to keep this thread of practice going. And I guess if I have if I if I've seen one thing that has allowed me to do it, it's uh, when I come up against something that seems familiar or stale is is maybe just letting go of what I think I know about it and seeing can I let go of that habit of mind and approach it without everything I know about it which is what I guess that's what worked for me with with Zazen was I don't need to know anything anymore I don't need to have attained anything anymore and it and it came alive for me um, so uh, I think I will leave it at that thank you I'm going to pull out another thread. Um, how is something wasted? Amy. Well, um, I thought about this a lot because as some of you might know, I went to the monastery for quite some time and also the temple in New York City. And at a certain point um, I stopped coming and I struggled a lot with practice. It was very performative at times for me, um, trying to do it right or not fail, things like that. Um, <clears throat> and, um, you know, and Zui say, I'm sorry, you, you had said the thread you pulled out, I forget exactly what you said, but could you repeat it one more time? Because it was related to what I was just about to say. Um. How is something wasted? So, yes. So that's what I was wanting to get at because that sense of being performative 
um, or not wanting to fail. Uh, and a lot of it for me was around, I, I, I literally, when I would sit physically, it was so painful for me. It was physically so painful for me that sometimes I would just be either nauseated or trembling. It was that painful. And, you know, I just couldn't, I was younger. And so I thought, you know, I needed to sit in cross-legged positions or whatever and just try to manage that. I was on ibuprofen throughout sessions and it was, it was really difficult. And I think when I stopped practice for a while and then came back to some other sanghas in the area I live in, one thing I, you know, I, I brought that to one of the teachers there and she was like, well, just sit in a chair. Now I know that seems very obvious, right? But I was younger and so I didn't, I felt like I, it would be failure to do that because I'm like, well, why would I sit in a chair? I'm, I'm not that, I'm pretty young. Um, so I don't consider that time wasted um, because what it did for me, even throughout all that pain and all that difficulty that I experienced that in retrospect could be considered very unnecessary. What I learned was I, I, I did achieve a sense of how to quiet my mind so that when I wasn't formally in practice, I did start bringing that into other places in my life. I resolved to bring it into my physical activities, my sports activities, my music, this, that, and the other, and to just breathe and use that quietness of mind that I had learned through that kind of discipline, if you will. And I, I realized practice isn't discipline per se, but because I had applied myself in that way, again, you could say it sounds maybe like it was wasted time, but I don't think so because it, it made me look at it. Um, and then in retrospect, you know, now I just say to myself, you know, I want to practice and I'm, I'm going to remove the barriers to my practice. Like I'm not going to sit here and be performative or to, um, you know, focus on whether I'm going to fail or not, but just remove the barriers. And I'm like, you know what, I'm going to sit in a chair. I'm going to sit however I can sit where I'm not so much in pain that I can't even focus on breathing practically. And so to me, I don't think it's wasted time, even if, you know, you could say the practice was maybe not what it should have been, but it was where I was at at the time. And so I had, I guess I had to go through that. I don't know. Um, but I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that we waste time in these places. We just sometimes have to be where we're at until we're not there anymore. Which then makes the should irrelevant. You are where you are until you're at a different place. Exactly. And so tying that to what Chris said earlier, there is nothing that is not part of that whole. There is nothing that stands outside. There's nothing that we cannot use. Um, John, I'll be with you in just a moment. Just James had his hand and then you can go. Thanks. Uh, yeah, this is pretty uh, incredible. The um, Sometimes perspective is wasted. And I think the thing that hit me was that every single person here on the call uh, came out of mother's body. Uh, Everyone on the planet came out of mother's body, everyone. So I think that perspective is kind of missing. We all came out of mother. Um, 
and the sky just fell on my head like a blue pancake. Thanks. John. Thank you. Um, the threads are well interwoven at this point, but the one common thread I hear is failure and then some about wasted. Um, and this is from someone who's a bit inconsistent with practice at best. So I don't think um, failure is, is accurate because it sounds like that would be only based on comparisons. Um, I could consider myself a failure for being as inconsistent as I am, and yet I don't because um, I, I started at some point long ago. Um, and wasted time is also um, relative. That is to say, maybe a session is not as, uh, as, as expected, um, but therefore it's not wasted. It's a learning experience. But the original thread was um, how to reignite enthusiasm as it as it starts to falter. And that could be very different for everyone, but I think remembering the benefits of sitting when one is not sitting um, can encourage one to to sit again because uh, although things can be difficult, the the benefits from, from something difficult are, are always there. Um, so I just wanted to get that in as I kept hearing the word failure, because I, I, I don't think anyone hears a, a failure or failed at all. Um, and that's it for me. Yes, thank you for bringing that up, John. I think you know another way of, of looking at it would be, if you're going to fail, fail completely. Thoroughly, every ounce of your being fail. Then where's the problem or what's the problem? Norm. Yes, can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. Um, Amy, thank you. Thank you for what you said. You renewed my... Um, my wanting to participate in these talks. Um, so I went into Ryushin uh, Dokusan once and I, and I said, sensei, I'm, I'm lazy. And he said, okay, no, he said, we all are. What I heard was Okay, fine, now what? And maybe we just don't do enough of that. Okay, fine, now what? That's all I have, thank you. Nina. Yeah, I just, I wanted to circle back to the thread that um, John touched on at the end, which was the original uh, question I believe Jessica had written. Um, or, or no, I'm sorry. So I say maybe this was yours. Uh, the how to 
revive enthusiasm in the practice, turning the indolence into that question. And as I listened to everyone, and I too heard, you know, these words failure and waste and found it interesting that those are connected to what we think of as capitalist productivity, consumerist kind of lens on what we do, you know, doing rather than being like, is there an outcome that's wasted because there's no outcome? Um, it's like, and failure, it's like people recently, I've been really conscious of people talking about failed marriages. And I'm like, well, what does that mean? It, you know, the, there was no out, what's the outcome? Is it the length? And it, it actually made me think about practice and that, you know, we, well, uh, you know, I'm sure many, many of you have done long retreats and then others have been monastics. And um, when you disrobe as a monastic, does that mean you're a failure? Um, there's so many, so many examples of incredible teachers that have left, you know, and married each other, whatever. So I just, um, I was, yeah, those words failure and waste, I've been sort of trying to replace those with other words, um, perhaps because I have an aversion, but the other, the, the sort of one con contribution I wanted to, I think is that indolence for me could be also replaced with the word boredom or I guess the, what I think of in my practice, which is, you know, not continuous either. When, when I am avoiding sitting or when I'm indolent and I'm beating myself up about that, I try to get, the antidote for me is to get curious, to investigate why. And very often when I feel strong aversion to sitting, there is a reason, there is, um, there's a hindrance, there's a fear. So the very act of engaging with my indolence is my noticing my indolence, you know, oh, wait, I, there's a lot, is, is practice. And, you know, nothing is, nothing is wasted because there's an outcome there, which is that we remember and we try to return. And often I, and I'm sure this, this is a paradox is that when I most don't want to sit and I overcome that indolence or that avoidance or that, or the underlying fears, then that is the time that I am most nourished and most liberated by sitting. So it's just, um, there, it's sort of like there is no failure um, if, you, if you can get interested. And then I just wanted, to, one last thing is I, I've had a mantra in my head that I plagiarized and I, I have to figure out who I plagiarized it from because it's either Christina Feldman or Ajahn Sushito, which is, it was a talk on virya and energy. And uh, the line was, where there is interest, there is attention. And where there's attention, there is energy. And so just to conclude, you know, for me, enthusiasm 
could be replaced by energy. Like, how do I get interested enough to bring my full attention to a mind state, even like indolence, <laughs> enough to generate a new energy or enthusiasm? So, thank you. Yes, that is a, a very nice place to, um, well, to stop just because, you know, we could keep going, but, um, you know, there's something very simple, I think, to remember, which is that we don't have to be on fire to practice. I mean, if we are on fire, great, and then, then use it use that natural hunger and energy and enthusiasm. But if you're not on fire, that's okay. You know, I, I, I've said before, you just, you start with a little spark, tiny little spark. I was remembering how the, the Pikani of the Blackfoot nation, you know, they, they carry a live coal in a, in a container made out of a, a horn, a buffalo horn understanding how sacred fire is, understanding how fire is life, how that little spark will bring something to life. So they would, they would carry it every time they would, they would move to another place and they would tend it very carefully. That's basically it. That's basically it, you know, protecting that little coal with everything that we have and sometimes it is going to be a tiny spark or we have to like there's that koan where the the one of the monks is 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 kind of raking through the embers and he's like no there's nothing here and the teacher comes and rakes a bit more and says how can you say there's nothing here and 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 finding those little bits you know of fire that's it that's it for more talks to get more information about Zvise's upcoming teachings or to join her email list, please visit vanessazvisegoddard.org.